Good morning, everyone. We are ready to begin here. You hear me okay? Yep. All right. Fantastic. So we are actually jumping into the actual book today. We've covered a lot of ground through September, looking at some of what I would call the global perspective things on Revelation, hopefully just techniques or ideas to help you navigate some of the big issues going through the book, some of the things that trip people up, you know, the confusing kind of stuff. But now what we're going to do is take all that and actually jump in to chapter one. So what I'd like to invite you to do is open up a Bible. Let's kind of dig into this together. If you got the Version app on your phone or another favorite Bible app, works great. You're a hard copy person, fantastic. Don't have one here, you'll find them under chairs. But Revelation chapter one. So here's what I like to do. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Just kind of get a lay of the land. I always like to get a lay of the land before I really start digging in to maybe a verse here or a verse there. We'll just kind of get it on our mental map and then we'll circle back in true Revelation style and recapitulate even chapter one, right? We'll go back and just start piecemealing through this and figuring out what is John setting up for us here. And now that we've talked about it, where has he actually taking us, or maybe more significantly, taking these seven churches through whom we're going to glean an impact for today. Here's where it goes. Revelation chapter 1. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who, teach, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us, by, uh, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice and that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, 
dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There we go, end of chapter one, and it's weird already, would you agree? So, we are getting a taste of what the rest of the book of Revelation, of the letter called Revelation, is going to be like. Remember, what John is doing is he is trying to make something clear. Something is being revealed or unveiled or made known. Something that you are not going to see or perceive by your own efforts and intuitions. It's something God has to show you. And so we could circle back up to the beginning and the best advice I can give you when going through the weirdness of Revelation is if it starts getting deep in the weeds, zoom out, all right? So just zoom out. If you're in so focused on a symbol and it's like, I can't figure out what this is, just back up a little bit and start asking the general sense you get from what's going on. I'll give an example. We showed some video clips over the last couple of weeks. Red Dawn was one of them, Rambo was one of them, and as we were looking at them, we made kind of the point that sometimes you see something, a detail, maybe like a uniform or an insignia, and it's significant. It's supposed to key us into something, right? But sometimes you see a detail, and it's not significant. It's just backdrop in the story, and you're just supposed to be left with a sense of things. So if some of these symbols are getting weird, just step back and go, like, what's the general sense I get from this? You, you know, what kind of like emotion is it meant to evoke? What, what, what kind of overall feel do I get about this guy, even if I don't know all the little details or maybe symbolic significance of every little bit? Try that if you get stuck. So back to the beginning, let's take it in a verse by verse fashion now and see if we can unpack what's going on. Make sense? All right. So we have an unveiling or a revealing or an apocalypse of Jesus, and maybe you've seen something already. It's not only from Jesus, which is going to come up next, but the very first thing we see is something very unique about Jesus. So back to that original point. We are getting an unveiling of things from Jesus of what's taking place. And we're also seeing something about Jesus himself. Look at how he puts it. So it's a revelation of Christ, right? Which God gave him. So God gave this revelation to Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Who's John? 
Well, he's the guy who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we got kind of a chain reaction. God is giving a revelation to Christ. Christ is then pushing the revelation on. He's doing it through an angel or a mediator. That mediator is coming to John, and John is this guy who has already given witness to things about Jesus, the testimony of Jesus, right? He's spent the better part of his life talking about Jesus, talking about how it kind of intersects with the word of God, and here's how this revelation is coming out from the Father, if you will. So, it seems kind of important, right? Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart. Do you want to be blessed? So at some level, you can just go like this. Okay, I like blessing. I want to be blessed. It's kind of a simple promise there. Hear the words. Take them to heart. And he says, you'll be blessed by it. Why? Because the time is near. And he doesn't flush out the significance of that. He doesn't say why that's important for this blessing or taking it to heart. But if you know anything else about the Bible, you can easily just walk with that. Christ is coming soon. I better be in a right state before him. It could be that way. Or maybe it's this way. I'm enduring some next level stuff. And if Christ is coming soon, maybe I can hang in there just a little bit longer because I know this isn't going to be long term. I'm just holding on uh, just a few more because the time is near. Or maybe I'm just a vindictive sort and I want to see people get their due. And maybe what I'm really happy about is when the time is near that all these people who are oppressing me are going to kind of, you know, get back on them what they've been dishing out. Doesn't say, but there's blessing there. Kelly, yeah. Revelation, the only book that actually says you'll receive a blessing by reading this? No. Yeah, you will find that in other uh, other places. Um, I I was hesitating a little bit because I was thinking like as a whole book. But you'll see the statements made by the prophets all the time. You'll see the statements made by Jesus in the Gospels, things like that, where they'll say similar ideas. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's keep pushing through. So standard kind of letter opening. You know, when we write a letter, we always address it to someone, then we give the body, then we sign it off who it's from. Ancient world, standard practice, a lot more like an email, right? You start with who it's from, then you go who it's to, and then you have like a regarding line. And if you check email, you know that the regarding line is often kind of important. It's cueing you into a theme. So you can look at the regarding line and get some insight into things, right? See what it does. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Again, that's modern-day Turkey particularly the western part of Turkey that doesn't have, like, land under it, right? And this is what he says. Grace and peace to you from him who was and who is and is to come, from the seven spirits before the throne, from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we got something Trinitarian going on. We've got God the Father described as a one who is and who was and is to come. We've got Spirit of God with this number seven that we're going to see come up a lot described. And then we have Jesus, right? So there's this like trifecta blessing or greeting that John is bringing. But what I want to do 
is key you into Jesus himself. First, did you notice this? There are some specific language that we've already seen repeated regarding Jesus that's already been coming in this book in the first five verses. And what is the phrase? Did you catch it about Jesus? Who is he? He is the faithful witness, right? He is the faithful witness. Now, how has John already kind of described himself? You see that? He's the one who testifies to that which is saw, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is a witness, if you will. And the witness is mirroring a witness. You're going to see this a lot in Revelation. And this is just a very kind of obtuse one, but I want to set the stage now. You're not going to be asked to do anything that Jesus doesn't do. But what Jesus gets, you're also going to get, right? On the bad, but also on the good. And that's kind of where the rubber hits the road and what you got to kind of wrestle in your heart as a follower of him. We see he's what? The firstborn from the dead, right? And we see he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. A lot of times when I read the Bible and I get like these, like descriptions of God, I kind of just take him as like random fluff. You know what I mean? Like, because we kind of pray that way, don't we? Like we start praying and we just start saying stuff about God. And maybe it's like cliches that we're regurgitating or maybe it's like phrases that we like. Maybe it's just kind of patterns that we've indwelled. But a lot of times when we're like, oh God, you're so good. Or, oh God, you know, you're, you're the king. Or even if we say father, how often are we actually thinking about him in the terms of what we're saying as opposed to just saying words? Are you following me on this? Do you do this at all or find yourself guilty? I certainly do. And I find I got to do a self-check when I read the Bible because there's about like a thousand things you could use to describe Jesus or say about him. But the biblical writers tend to be a little more intentional than I think we are today. When they choose certain phrases, it's because that's kind of an important one to know for what's coming forward. So we have a few things. He's faithful, right? Because he's going to say some pretty weird stuff. Can we trust it? Maybe he's laying out some groundwork there. A little bit more. It says he's the firstborn from the dead, right? Well, that's going to get important. We'll leave that one on the side. But he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Mention to me some kings, past or present. Charlemagne. Jesus, the king of Charlemagne. All right, who else? Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Jesus, the king of Joe Biden. Okay, who else? Roman emperors. Domitian being the Roman emperor now. The Roman emperor over these people. Is Jesus the ruler of the Roman emperor? Even though the Roman emperor is all powerful. Even the Roman emperor claims things that are like near divine in status. Even though the Roman emperor, when the money hits the road, seems to be the one controlling the shots, who's, who holds the destiny and fate of my life in his hands. He goes like this, I live. He goes like this, I die. He seems to be the emperor. He seems to be the ruler, right? 
what are we seeing right off the bat about Jesus? What is the claim being made that isn't just theological nicety, but that is actually countercultural, subversive, and relevant, if you will? You tracking? Revelation will do that kind of thing. So you always got to put yourself into that first century mind, if you will. So he goes on and he gives the greeting. And then he talks about glory and power being Christ's. He says he loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And he said he made us to be a couple of things. Do you see this in verse 6? Themes that are going to come up later. He's made you to be a kingdom, and he's made you to be priests. All right, you often think about a kingdom as a place, right? Kingdom of God is one of those huge ideas that you will find throughout the Gospels. In fact, you can say that what the Gospels are fundamentally about is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Some will argue, and I am in agreement with them, that the kingdom of God is actually the unifying theme that connects Genesis to Revelation and is the main artery or highway that everything drives on. But it gets weird if you think about the kingdom as a place, like territory, if you will. What you'll see is that Jesus, especially in the Gospels, will kind of approach this kingdom idea, like where God reigns, in a different sort of way. And I'm not going to get into all of it right now. We've talked about some of this in the past. But what I want to do is highlight one little point. That you, as a, shall we say, one who hears the testimony, listens to it and follows it, right? You become the kingdom. You might be in the Roman kingdom. Or you might be in someone else's kingdom. But... If you are doing what this says, answering the invitation to blessing, if you will, you actually become the kingdom of God, which, if I put it another way, might help you see it differently and make sense. You are where God reigns. Think about that a little bit. You might be in the midst of something that is out of your control. You might be under the oppression and persecution of powers in this world that are greater than you personally. But if you are in Christ, God is manifesting and exercising his kingdom or his reign in you. And much of what Revelation is going to be about is you can't control out here. But even if you are smack dab in the middle of that hurricane, out here, God can still reign in you right there, wherever you might find. And no one can take that away from you. No one can keep you from it. No one can lock it down. This is why someone who can be on death row or in prison can be in the heart of the kingdom of God, right? They can take away your freedom. They can take away your life. They can take away your rights. They can take away... But God in that place can still reign and is still reigning in you. There's an old singer-songwriter called, uh, I think it's Rich Mullins, and I think this is a Rich Mullins song. Sally would know because she knows all things about Rich Mullins. Um, but if it's not Rich Mullins, it's Stephen Curtis Chapman. 
And the song is I Am Free, and it's based on John 8, where Jesus says, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And what the entire song is about is whichever of these singer-songwriters it was, it was Stephen Curtis Chapman. Sorry, I didn't mean to blast him, the great Rich Mullins, Sally. But he goes into a maximum security penitentiary onto death row. And he is witnessing and discipling a prisoner who is going to die, rightfully, mind you, for his crimes. And the entire song is about not the message that Stephen Curtis Chapman is bringing. It is about the sense of freedom that he witnessed this prisoner experiencing despite everything to the contrary. And the chill that kind of went down his spine as he realized he was standing there in a hole and yet witnessing the kingdom of God before him. Does that make sense? And he says he will make you to be a kingdom. And he's going to make you something else too. He's going to make you a priest. You are priests in God's eyes. So go home today. Hop on Amazon. Get that black clerical collar and tab and start wearing it boldly because he says you are a priest. What is a priest? If I was to ask you, it's worth digressing. How would you define or describe maybe a priest? Paint the mental picture for me. What's a priest? I heard a go-between and I heard something else. He leads worship. We see priests lead worship, right? That's more mental picture and that's more definition. I don't know where we got go between over here. If we go mental picture side, let's, let's roost there more. We see someone who leads worship. What else? Catholic Church. What else? Here's confessions, little black box. How's he dressed? Collar. What color? White. I, I, that's cool. If you see priests dressed in all white, or do you mean like the little collar? Oh, yeah, yeah, but what's the rest? Usually guy dressed in black, right? Um, usually what gender? Now, if you're Anglican or something, it's not exclusive that way, but certainly Roman Catholic or Orthodox. What else? Intercedes on behalf of the people. Intercedes on behalf of the people, right? You just kind of describe the Western perception of a priest, do other religions have priests? Okay, do they wear black? Maybe, maybe. All right, do they hear confessions in little boxes? Pagan, sure, yes, pagan religions, they, they, confession goes back to maybe like the Artemis cult or something like that. No, not at all. That is just like you're making crap up. So, <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> No, no, what what I'm trying to push you is, is you hear priest and you think Roman Catholic. But priest is a term that's been used throughout history for various religious kinds of people, right? They could be Christian, they could be pagan, um, they could be Jewish. Is this description fit a Jewish priest in any way whatsoever? Not if you've ever read the Bible. I mean, you know, again, if you just kind of make stuff up, sure, you can make anything work. But if you read the Bible of what a Jewish priest looks like, you're not going to get the same picture as a Catholic priest. Um, so what is this thing? And you said it earlier. I just kind of wanted to force the hand on this a little bit. 
the basic bottom line definition of a priest is a middleman, a go-between, an intercessor, someone said. But I kind of like middleman or go-between. Here's the basic idea. God or the gods are somewhere, right? And I am somewhere else. And I want to have some level of access with God or the gods. This is true whether you're pagan, Jewish, or Roman Catholic, all right? And I want to have some kind of interaction with them, some kind of intimacy with them. I want to be able to approach them. I want them to hear me. I want to request something of them. I want to have a life with them. I put that any way you want, but you're, you're kind of tracking, right? Well, how do I get there? How do I do it? Because there's obviously some kind of division or some kind of gulf. So what you need or the way humanity has thought throughout history is there are certain people who kind of get it. Certain people who know the ins. Certain people who know what to do to get God or the gods to listen. Certain people that might even be thought to be set up by the gods to act as their agents, if you will. They are the middlemen that you go to. They are priests. So if you're in the pagan world and you want to get whatever god of the pantheon to respond to you, right? Well, do you know what to do? Do you know the rites? Do you know the rituals? Probably not. So what you do is you go to a priest because they do, they kind of get God, you know, where they know how this God operates. They know his MO or her MO and they help you bridge the gap. You go to Judaism, Old Testament. Could you walk into the Holy Holies? If you're anyone, could you go into the presence of God? No, you had to go through a middleman. You had to go through a priest. That's the significance of Jesus in the letter of Hebrews being called the great high priest. He is the ultimate middleman between us and God. To put it another way, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. A lot of people today want to have intimacy with God, communion with God, are seeking God. And because they feel a certain way or like the idea, they're like, oh, there's all these different kinds of paths to get to God. What if God sets the rules? And what if God has his way of saying, this is how you get to me? Well, Jesus claims he is that way sent by God to exactly make that happen. This is why in Roman Catholicism, unlike Protestantism, they call their religious leaders priests as well. Because at some degree, you still need to get sacramental blessing through a middleman in order to receive the fullness of grace from God. So if you want your sins remitted, if you will, you go to a confession and the priest does it. If you want to take Christ into you and receive his body and blood, you need the middleman who consecrates the elements. Make sense? Protestants practice something called a priesthood of all believers. And in many ways, it parallels what we're reading right here in Revelation. It's the idea that if you are in Christ, you are a priest. You are a middleman. You are an intercessor. You are an agent. That's the, that's, that's the weight of what John is writing to these seven churches. He has made you or made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve God, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.
that is the setup and the grand call of this letter. So far, so good? Okay, yeah, Mark. All right. So here's what I'd like you to do. On your own, go and sift through verse 7, where we get this quote, look, he's coming with the clouds, and the rest of the chapter, and what I want you to do is create a picture of who Jesus is based solely on the description that we are getting here. What does he look like? What kind of sense do you get of him? I don't want you to be thinking Jesus and Luke. I don't want you to be thinking Jesus and the artwork that your grandma has up on her wall where he's holding little lambs, all right? I don't want you to be thinking of arch children's books or stained glass windows. I want a revelation picture of Jesus starting at verse 7, Go ahead, start compiling it. You can kind of wrestle it out with some people sitting around you if you want and kind of bat it around and we'll come up for air in about two minutes, okay? Shouldn't take you that long. You, <clears throat> excuse me, you might still be going, but I think we're good enough on that, all right? And uh, keep, keep sifting it over. What are the descriptors? What is he like? What did he see? What picture is given? Blazing. blazing. All right, he's blazing. What else? One more time. A robe reaching to his feet, a golden sash. Okay, so we see a robe reaching down to his feet. I, I forget what color. Did it mention a color? He just says he's wearing the robe, but he's wearing a golden sash. What does a golden sash maybe lead you to? What, 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 what does that feel like? What? Yeah, maybe royalty, opulence, wealth, something like that. Sure, sure, right? What else? Hopefully not Miss America, right? What else? He's got white hair. Do you ever think of Jesus as having white hair, like Santa Claus hair? So do you see it that way? Did you hear what Tammy said? Uh, does white indicate maybe like it's glowing? So maybe instead of thinking like someone who is, like shall we say, in the back half of life's journey, is it something else we're supposed to see in white like blazing glory or something? I don't know. Interesting. Is it, is it indicating antiquity, age, ancientness? Is that what we're seeing? Or are we seeing something else? Good question. What else do you see? Yeah. So we see an eternality, uh, Marilyn said. He's described as the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So he's the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. Yeah, yeah, he seems to be like the complete package, the total from, from the, the, the inception of all things to the end of all things. What else do we see? Eyes like flaming fire. Those are, are, are those creepy eyes or those powerful eyes? Do you like eyes like that? I'm curious, who likes eyes like that? Who's like scared of eyes like that? Should we be scared? What's John's reaction to this vision? Did you catch that? I mean, this, this is the guy who followed Jesus for years. 
This is the guy who snuggled up into Jesus' side and arm at the Last Supper, like, you know, laid on his side kind of thing. This is the guy who knows Jesus intimately, warmly, comfortably, maybe like a son with his dad or something like that, right? And now he sees him and he's laid flat. He becomes like a dead man because of the, what, the power, the grandeur, the glory, whatever it might be. What else do you see? A voice like rushing waters. What does it sound like? Because that's, we don't talk that way, right? Like, do you get off the phone and walk, like, wow, it just sounded like rushing waters on the phone. I mean, what's that, what does that invoke? Yeah, how do we understand that? Okay, powerful. What else? You, you, you ever been like Niagara? Or you ever been near, near like Rapids or something like that? It, it, it's, it's roaring. It's deafening, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then what if someone talks to you with a voice like that? Like, like, would it not just kill you to be threatened by James Earl Jones? Like, anyone could threaten you. And if James Earl Jones threatened you, it would be a whole different level, right? Because simply the nature of his voice. Imagine someone who speaks. I, I heard an interview with James Earl Jones once where he said he always had a voice like that. I mean, I don't know if he's like five years old and like came out of the womb in puberty or something. Who knows? But... But like all through high school and even middle school, I guess, he had that kind of resonance. And he said no one ever messed with him. Because a voice like that just kind of commands authority and power, doesn't it? I like to think of a lion roar. You know, a lion roars, and it kind of puts you in your place a little bit, especially if you're not at the zoo but in the wild face to face. Right? Okay, so we see that. What else do we see? Paint the picture. What's going on with the feet? Burnished bronze. Burnished bronze. Do, like, do we even know what bronze looks like? You know, maybe, but maybe before we even try to figure out what it means, let's just see what John is seeing. He's seeing a dude whose feet are like glowing, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll circle into that. But don't let the connections and the desire for answers blind you from what John is trying to show you, right? Just start with what you see before you try to unpack. Feet that are glowing or burnished or shiny or, I mean, it's weird to me. Like, and artists can never really kind of capture this because like, you see this weird composite image where it's like, this white-haired Santa Claus dude with like shiny feet and, and a gold Miss America sash, and it becomes comical, right? So you gotta kinda try to enter into the thought world of John, and I think you have to do this in the Bible, because what are these guys trying to do? They're not sitting there philosophizing about the nature of God and coming up with symbols. They're going, I saw something, and I'm using whatever meager language I have at my disposal to try to capture this image in front of me, not in a vacuum, but nonetheless, it's how I'm trying to describe it. Yeah, Tammy. Listen to the enthusiasm with which you are describing it. Now, he was there and he saw it, so some of that enthusiasm is going to come through the letter. It's not going to be sitting down and writing this logical letter. It's like, wow, it was like this. 
And it could be too, though I would also add terror. I'm not speaking with terror because I'm not face to face with it. But it is fascinating that when people are face to face with Christ in his glory, it's often terror. Because when you're face to face with God and God's glory, you realize how unworthy, how insignificant, and how, shall we say, darkened, blackened, defiled, arguably you are. Jesus, uh, um, Peter gets a glimpse in Jesus' lifetime. And Peter's response is to fall on his face on a fishing boat and go, depart from me, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips or I'm a sinner or something like that. Um, You see it at the transfiguration where Jesus is kind of revealed a little bit, where he's shown in his glory. And Peter, James, and John, who was there then, are just like, it's like they were so afraid they didn't know what to do, Mark says. You see this little glimpse in John where the guards come to arrest Jesus and they go, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And in a very coy way, he goes, I am, which of course is a play on God's name. And it says all the guards fall to the ground who came to arrest him. Little glimpses this man from Nazareth would give over three years of his ministry. But here John is seeing it and all its glory. Here's the, yeah, yeah, go ahead, and then I'll have to land the plane. Yeah, right, but I wanted to make sure we got to the, the sword coming out of his mouth. Oh, yeah, we got blades coming out of his mouth, right. Yeah, yeah sword mouth. I mean, just like, I mean, now, now we're in like fantasy adventure sci-fi where it's like the guy is like literally shooting blades or something like that out of his mouth. I mean, the roaring wasn't bad enough, right? The question I want you to go home with and the homework I want you to do if you want to take it to the next level, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time next week because we're going to jump into chapter two, is simply this. John has given you his language to describe Jesus. If you were to try to contemporize this language, how would you rewrite the script using imagery that conveys the same effect and power to you or someone that you know? Most people today don't talk about burnished bronze. What might be an equivalent? What might be a comparative way? Are you following the exercise here? Play with that and see where it takes you. Second, and I'm going to give you these one time, and you can write them down if you care and let it go if you don't. All of the imagery we're seeing about Jesus here resonates from a deep well of similar imagery you will find when people come face to face with God in the Old Testament. So we're truly seeing something of the divinity of Christ in this reflection of imagery here because the way God is described, Jesus is being described. Let me give you these passages if you care. Ezekiel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 7. Exodus 19. Exodus 24 starting at verse 8. Exodus 33, starting at verse 18. And if you're like, a, like an eager student, you can even read ahead into like Revelation 4 and 5, where you get more there too. And if you want to play with it, just see how that even brings it further. We're out of time. We've got to land the plane. So Revelation 2 next week. All right?